It's early September, 1566. In the southern plains of Hungary, a 71-year-old Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent watches another artillery barrage pound at the walls of Sigetvar Fortress. The ever-present mist and grey sky had reduced visibility, and the drizzling weather had made draining the moat of the castle difficult, but the siege was progressing. After battering the castle for almost three weeks, virtually nothing of the outer walls was still left. The bastion, the only building still standing, stood like a mausoleum on a hill of sharp, broken gravestones. It was teetering, verging on collapse, but no matter what Suleiman tried, the defenders refused to surrender. No longer able to even raise their head above the walls, the siege had fallen into a familiar pattern. By daylight, the castle stood, beaten and broken, silently taking all the abuse the Ottomans could dish out. But by nightfall, it came to life. Like ants pouring out of an anthill, soldiers and townsfolk patched up the walls, re-dug trenches and delivered ammunition to the outer towers. Church bells rang in communion and hymns wafted across the swamp to the Ottoman camp. And by morning, it started again. Suleiman's generals debated on the next steps. Already, they'd offered the castle's commander, Count Nikola Zrinsky, all manner of riches, lands and titles. But the Sultan knew his generals were wasting their breath. When a blacksmith refines his alloy, through heat and hammer he casts off the impurities, leaving only the purest metal behind. Suleiman's conquests in Eastern Europe were the same. Through bribery, victory or flattery, he'd cast aside the weaker rulers. Anyone that remained, anyone insane enough to oppose him, wasn't there to beat the Sultan, they were there to bleed him dry. To sell their lives at such a high cost that the Sultan would be humiliated regardless of the outcome. Through laboured breath, the old sultan squinted at the rickety fortress. He knew it wasn't a matter of time, but when? When would Zrinsky die and give him Sagetva? Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Welcome back to the Anthology of Heroes podcast, the podcast sharing stories of heroic figures who altered the course of history. Anthology of Heroes is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Elliot Gates, and today I am walking you through part two of the story of the 1566 Siege of Segetva. 
Sagetva was a small but well-defended castle in southern Hungary that the Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman Magnificent, was hell-bent on conquering. Though the fortress was fairly important in the long war between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs, for the old Sultan it was more than that. Almost certainly he knew this would be his last campaign. Kept alive by elixirs and medicines, his bones ached and his mind was beginning to fade. He was determined for his final campaign to end in victory. But Count Nikola Zrinsky, the commander of the fortress, was equally determined to hold out. Zrinsky had already decided whether a relief army came or not, he would go down with the ship. He would not turn the keys over to the Sultan. But as the structure quivered after barrage after barrage of artillery fire, the question had turned into who would break first, the castle or the Sultan? Our previous episode was almost entirely dedicated to Suleiman's life. As he and his enormous army made their way to Sigetvar, he had plenty of time to dwell on his seven decades on earth. We saw the rise of his closest friend and probably lover, Ibrahim Pasha, a Greek slave who had become Grand Vizier, the highest position in the Ottoman Empire, apart from the Sultan himself. We saw how the Sultan's favouritism to his friend scandalised his court, We talked a little about the Ottoman attitudes towards homosexuality before seeing the rise of perhaps the most powerful woman to ever grace the halls of the Takapi Palace. That woman was Roxolana, a redhead slave from Poland who Suleiman fell head over heels for. Roxolana had caused ripples in court by insisting on a monogamous, almost Western-style relationship with the Sultan, who shockingly agreed. Suleiman was so smitten by the redhead vixen that court gossip speculated that she'd actually bewitched him with spells from her native land. We finished the episode with a dejected Suleiman reading over love poetry and letters he'd written to Roxolana, who in turn complained to him about the influence of Ibrahim, the Grand Vizier. The writing was on the wall, and Suleiman would soon have to pick between his best friend and his wife. There was quite a bit in episode one. Through it, we got to learn why Suleiman was the way he was, so I'd recommend checking that one out. But if you're the type of person who likes to fast forward through the action movies to get to the good parts, then by all means, don't let me stop you. Let's get into it. Part 2, the final part of the 1566 Siege of Segetva. Through a half-collapsed window, the 58-year-old Count Nicholas Drinsky IV looked out at Suleiman's grand tent, wondering at the kind of man Suleiman must be. The castle shook and flakes of plaster rained down on him as another cannonball tore into the walls. His council chambers looked like an infirmary now. In fact, every room did. Each man was coated in plaster, mud, and dried blood. It was near impossible to find a man without wounds. Leaning against walls or sprawled out on the floor, with each cannonball impact, everyone grimaced and braced themselves, as if waiting for the roof to collapse. But not Zrinsky. He knew exactly how much damage his castle could take, and the old sultan hadn't reached the threshold yet. Every wall he knew the thickness, every trench its width, every cannon its calibre. Becoming commander of this strategically vital castle was the culmination of Nikola Zrinsky's life work and he'd spent years building up its defences for a siege just like this one. 
A career land baron, Zrinsky had worked his way up from minor lord to court aristocrat. But Count Nikola Zrinsky had not lived a good life. Everything he'd done in life, he'd done for himself. In his mind, charity belonged in the church and had no place in the hard, cruel, real world. Every loan, marriage or donation was a favour he could bank away for a rainy day. More leverage to hold over another person to advance his standing at the Habsburg court. While it's true he owned almost every village from Mohach to Vienna, you'd be hard-pressed to find another man who'd sit for dinner with him. Zrinsky's name was Mud. A loyal hound for the Habsburg family, he did the dirty jobs they didn't want to be associated with. On their orders, he'd invited another commander to dinner and, under the flag of hospitality, lunged at him, stabbing him to death. While the name Zrinsky was black in the courts of Europe, few could deny the man had his uses. He'd been there years ago when a much younger Solomon and his army bore down on the Golden Apple. Outside the city walls, in the mud and blood, Zrinsky and his men did their part protecting the gateway to Europe. Fearless and cool-headed, his skill on the battlefield and his loyalty to the Emperor soon catapulted him into the upper echelons of power, part of the inner circle of the Habsburg court. Not long after, he was formally offered the command of Sigetvar Fortress. It was a huge promotion, but one that came with equally huge risks. Sigetvar Castle was a formidable structure, but it was deep behind enemy lines. A Habsburg castle smack bang in the middle of Ottoman lands. Zrinsky had been given the ultimate prize, the culmination of a life spent scheming and killing for the Habsburgs. And if anyone, be they Muslim or Christian, wanted to take it from him, they'd need to pry the keys from his cold, dead hands. In a letter written to a friend before the siege began, the Count declared, quote, We have decided to lock ourselves up in this fortress, our wish being to serve our sweet, doomed country with our blood, and in the event, by risking our lives. From the time he took command, Zrinsky had begun fortifying his prize. Walls were thickened, food, ammunition and medicine were stockpiled, and peasants were forced to labour on the moat. The castle already had a moat, but Zrinsky deliberately burst the banks of it, flooding the outer plains and turning the surrounding countryside into a thick, soupy swamp. So now, anyone that wished to attack would have to drag their cannons across a thick bog to get in range of the castle. The Count received little help from the Habsburg court, so he raided Ottoman lands and took what he needed. He had no qualms about antagonising the Sultan because he probably knew that, regardless of whether or not he kept a low profile, his castle would be the first in any campaigns headed into Europe. And soon, whispers of exactly that reached his ears. By 1565, there were rumours that the Sultan was planning a campaign his third and final attempt to conquer the Golden Apple, Vienna. The army would have to march right past Sigetva. Zrinsky knew that the Sultan would never leave an actively hostile fortress at the rear of an army. Without a doubt, the Ottomans would be coming for his castle first. And now, as another cannonball pounded into the walls and shook the room, his hunch proved correct. Stamping a letter with a wax seal, he directed a messenger to Vienna, The stamped envelope was another request, a plea for the Emperor to send reinforcements. The Emperor that Zrinsky had loyally served was their only hope. If a relief army didn't arrive soon, all the willpower in the world would not keep this structure standing. 
Back in Solomon's grand tent, the sultan tossed and turned, with the rains letting up as doctors had hoped his pains would dissipate, but they were worse than ever. As he dreamt, he thought back to the night when everything changed. It was 1536, 30 years ago. He was in his dining hall back in Istanbul, sitting soberly with his wife, Roxolana, and his grand vizier, Ibrahim Pasha. The dining table overflowed with game birds and fish of all kinds, dressed in spices and herbs from as far away as Indonesia. But Solomon wasn't hungry. Pushing the food around in his plate, he sat stone-faced, watching, rather than listening, as Ibrahim told another story of his victories in Persia. As his old friend exuberantly explained the strange customs of the Persians, Solomon quietly looked him up and down. Everything this man owned, everything he was, everything he'd achieved, was thanks to him, Solomon. Did he realise that? Apart from himself, Ibrahim was the most powerful person in the empire, more powerful than even his beloved Roxolana. Solomon took another long sip of water as the Grand Vizier continued. Ibrahim always did have a way with words, but Solomon knew him well enough to know when he was nervous. Over the last five years, the relationship between these two soulmates had soured. The Sultan wasn't an idealistic teenager anymore. He didn't need long walks in the forest or dreamy boat rides discussing the origins of the universe. He was the ruler of the largest empire in the world, and what he needed was stability and loyalty. And he was no longer sure if Ibrahim gave him either. Roxolana sat, watching the pasha with an expression that matched her husband's. Since her arrival at the court as a concubine, she had risen further than any woman in the Ottoman Empire ever had, or ever would. Now Suleiman had no concubines, favourites or consorts. She and Suleiman were married. Breaking centuries of tradition, the two were in a monogamous, western-style relationship. She was, for all intents and purposes, queen of the Ottoman Empire. Since she'd arrived on the scene, she'd never liked her husband's closeness with this Greek slave. And recent events had driven the point home. The Sultan was getting old and succession was on everyone's mind. By the 1550s, Suleiman had four sons, three through Roxolana, and one other son through an old concubine of his called Mahidevran. Though Mahidevran was now long gone from the political scene, her son remained and had grown into a very talented, disciplined, and brave man. His name was Mustafa. Without a doubt, Mustafa was the best candidate for the throne. Foreign dignitaries who met the Sultan's sons didn't even consider it a competition. Mustafa was loved by the soldiers and the people, he was wise, good-looking, with an even temperament that matched his father's. But Roxolana knew well that if Mustafa took the throne, he would follow the Ottoman tradition of having his brothers strangled. That was just the way it was. And once that happened, she'd likely be killed, or at best sent away to some faraway hermitage to live out her days as a wizened old crone. For her to survive, she needed to convince her husband that one of their sons was a better choice of heir. Unfortunately, all her kids were pretty unremarkable. Salim was a womanizing drunkard who palace staff nicknamed the Sot. Bayezid was impatient and entitled, and Kiangir was cursed to be born as a hunchback. But Roxolana had tasted power. 
She'd come from nothing and refused to return to nothing. Gently and gradually, she turned Suleiman against Mustafa. This put her at odds with the government, the army, and most prominently, Ibrahim Pasha. All of whom pointed out that Mustafa was the obvious choice to succeed the throne. But one fateful day on campaign, the Sultan summoned Mustafa to his tent. Once he'd entered his father's quarters, the young man was seized, and after a struggle, killed. We don't know exactly what crime Mustafa was said to have committed, but it seems he was accused of plotting rebellion against his father. While the specifics of the crime aren't clear, the reaction from his empire was. Outraged army corps rebelled against the Sultan, horrified that someone like Suleiman, who preached law and order, would execute his son for virtually no reason. Poems were published and dirges were sung, And though the Sultan calmed things down, this murder was a stain on his career and his conscience. Since that fateful day, he had fought a civil war against another one of his sons, leaving just a single contender to follow in his footsteps. Out of the eight sons he bore over the course of his life, the only option left, the only one still living, was Salim. An overweight drunkard who preferred parties and musicians to learning and bureaucracy. As Suleiman looked at his plate of untouched food, his anger rose quietly inside. Ibrahim continued to spew an unending stream of flattery, but he was past listening, past caring. In that moment, he saw Ibrahim as everything Roxolana said he was, a Greek slave, a crypto-Christian who desired the throne for himself. It was Ibrahim to blame for his recent setbacks, Ibrahim to blame for his drunkard of an heir, Ibrahim to blame for everything. Pulling his chair back, he bid his old friend farewell and retired to his chamber with Roxolana following in tow. Once he'd reached his chamber, he summoned the palace mutes. Ten years ago, it was these men that would pass the letters of affection between Solomon and Ibrahim when they could never bear to be apart. Tonight, though, they were here for a very different reason. As the Grand Vizier slept, they crept into his quarters and tried to strangle him. But the Pasha woke up and, wearing just his nightgown, dove for his weapon. He did his best to fight them off, tearing the curtains and sheets as he writhed and squirmed, forcing the mutes to draw their daggers and finish him off. On the 15th of March, 1536, servants entered the chambers of the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire. Inside was a grisly sight. Bedsheets in tatters and curtains drenched in blood, Ibrahim Pasha, a Greek slave who had risen to the highest echelons of power, was laying on his bed with multiple stab wounds and a noose around his neck. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, 
please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. The painful memories, even in sleep, troubled the Sultan greatly. Outside the collapsing fortress of Segetva, he tossed and turned. His 72-year-old heart beat rapidly. Unable to drive away the dark memories, his breathing turned ragged and sharp. As the Sultan gasped for air, inside Segetva, Zrinsky now knew his position was hopeless. The Emperor, his last hope, had fallen victim to Suleiman's spies. He'd become convinced that his capital, Vienna, was the true objective for the attack and that Segetval was just a diversion to draw his troops away. That was why he'd ignored Zdrinsky's calls for help. Segetval was a castle on a chessboard, being sacrificed to keep the king safe. No relief army was coming. Zdrinsky was on his own. The Ottomans had now taken both islands that linked Segetvar to the mainland. Both the old town and the new town had fallen. Painstakingly, at great human cost, they drained the moat. The cannons were now in firing range of his bastion. Chunks of mortar and brick fell from the ceiling with each hit as Zrinsky's troops did their best to return fire. As he reread the offer of surrender from the Sultan, Zrinsky mulled over his options. Without a doubt, his cause was hopeless. Looking around at his crumbling castle, he realised this was the culmination of a life spent climbing the political totem pole. All manner of wicked deeds he'd performed, anything to progress his career. He had begun his life as a minor land baron, and now he stood an esteemed member of the imperial aristocracy, commander of one of the most important castles in the empire. All his life he'd wanted riches, and now he had them. Wanted command, he'd got it. Wanted respect, he'd earned it. But what was the point of any of it? When this castle fell, it would all be for nothing. And then what? Was there any place in God's kingdom for him? But perhaps even a soul as wicked as his could be redeemed. Here he was, a Croat landlord, holding back Solomon the Magnificent, the most powerful man in the world. Perhaps even then, he knew his name would be written in the history books. Crumbling the letter into a ball, he threw it in the fire. Let the old man come for him. He had a stack of gunpowder left and the outer fortress could still be held for a day or two. Just then though, a deafening roar of an explosion ripped through the fortress. The scrape of iron and the slow rumble of collapsing bricks. He heard men screaming and felt a wave of heat warm his body, followed by a heavy dark smoke that spread through the room. Zrinsky rushed to the ramparts to see the Janissary troops surging up the walls. 
The attackers had dug a mine under the side of the fortress and detonated a bomb in the tunnel below. Sliding into the drained swamp, the side of the fortress was completely gone. As flames engulfed the interior and the teetering structure began to quiver, Zrinsky knew there was no way he could defend it any longer. Through the smoke and ash, he gathered up all the men who could still stand and the few horses that remained. He may have told them that this was their moment and that their deeds in the next few minutes would outlive them all. A poem written by Zrinsky's great-grandson has him saying, quote, Since, because of the fire, we cannot stay here, as soon as God allows us to see the dawning, we will go out of the castle and will there show that those whom we were in life, we are the same now. As the Janissaries swarmed up the gatehouse closing in for the kill, the drawbridge dropped and the early morning sunshine flooded into the collapsing castle. Destiny was calling them. The Janissary troops surged in through the breach. Out of a cloud of smoke and soot roared the last few defenders of Sigetvar into the maw of the Ottoman troops, spurring their horses forward into certain death. The crack of rifles erupted as the Janissary corps eviscerated the men. Leading the charge, Nikola Zrinsky was hit first and slumped over in his saddle, dead. Those that left with him lasted less than a minute. It was over. After one month and two days, Sigetvar had fallen. Behind them sat nothing but a shell. Zrinsky and his defenders truly had held out until the last possible moment. The Ottoman siege camp broke into celebrations and everyone was jubilant. The pious praised Allah, the impious drank and womanized, and Suleiman's generals breathed a sigh of relief. During the last week, a bout of dysentery had spread through the camp, and all of them worried that the Sultan's delicate health wouldn't be able to take any further strain. But they'd made it. Sultan Suleiman had completed his 13th military campaign. Eager to tell their Sultan the good news, they entered his tent and approached the monarch's bed. Gently, they touched his shoulder, but the Sultan didn't stir. He was cold to touch. Turning him around, they must have gasped, seeing the glassy eyes of Suleiman the Magnificent staring back at them. The Sultan was dead. Sealing the tent flaps quickly to keep the news from spreading, the celebrations of the camp stopped quickly as the distant sounds of a huge explosion rippled through the area. It seemed like, even in death, Count Zrinsky had had the last laugh. As the Ottoman soldiers rushed in the castle to loot it, an ammunition cache caught fire, causing the teetering castle to explode spectacularly. Debris and stones flew in all directions and buried thousands of Ottoman soldiers in the rubble. Suleiman the Magnificent's death marked the end of an era. There would never be another Ottoman sultan quite like Suleiman. His rule was the culmination of centuries of progress and expansion. He'd inherited a stable, rich empire and moulded it to his values. He never shirked from his responsibilities and he really did seem to care about his subjects. Though some of his conquests would be rolled back, he undoubtedly changed the geographics of Europe. The present-day Muslim-majority countries of Albania, Kosovo, Bosnia and Herzegovina saw large-scale adoption of Islam during his reign. As a boy, he'd set out to emulate his great-grandfather, but in some ways he'd surpassed him. In Turkey, they call Mehmet II, Fatih Sultan Mehmet, Mehmet the Conqueror, 
but they call Suleiman Kanuni Sultan Suleiman, Suleiman the lawgiver or the lawmaker. But at the end of the day, he too was just a man. He wasn't infallible, and the nepotism that he showed towards his favourites, particularly towards Roxlana, would have consequences that would far outlive him. Her position in the Ottoman court had no precedent. A woman with real, meaningful power pulling the strings. And long after she'd passed away, other ambitious women looked at Roxolana and saw how far they could rise. Historians refer to the next 100 years of the Ottoman Empire as the Sultanate of Women, a period of time when women, usually the Sultan's mother or one of his concubines, would increasingly dominate the patriarchal Ottoman court. After Suleiman's death was finally announced, his son, Selim, became the new Sultan as planned. And it was like putting a toddler in the cockpit of a Boeing 747. Suleiman had left behind an enormous, efficient, but complex bureaucracy. This huge, infernal machine with pressure valves and hundreds of dials that needed to be monitored and pressed at specific intervals. Selim was just not up to the task. Rarely sober, he met his end just eight years later, slipping on marble tiles when he was drunk. His death began the very gradual decline of the Ottoman Empire. But Europe wasn't out of the woods yet. The dream of taking Vienna, the golden apple, didn't die with Suleiman. The most dramatic siege in Europe's history was about 100 years from now. But the Ottoman outlook on Europe had shifted. From every Western campaign they planned, there was a gnawing memory of how much the Habsburgs made them bleed for a single castle at Segetva. The Sultan's legendary end dragged another unexpected name along with it into the annals of history. Nikola Zrinsky was truly an unlikely hero. If he was never given command of this fortress, he'd probably just be a footnote in our history books. Just a run-of-the-mill, money-hungry land baron, he probably wouldn't be remembered. But instead, he became the figure of legends. His fellow nobles, who used to spit at the thought of him, begrudgingly admitted that his legendary last stand had wiped the slate clean from a life of sin. A certain Romanian bishop who knew him and despised him was forced to admit that he had truly wiped his sins clean with such a glorious end. While one of Suleiman's generals who watched stunned as Zrinsky charged fearlessly into his front lines wrote to a friend regretting that he never got to meet him, quote, I still regret his death, and I can prove this because his head is not on a pail, meaning a pike. I sent it up to have it cleaned. I also had his body buried, as it would have been a shame to have the body of such a brave gentleman eaten by the birds. Zrinsky's garrison of 2,300 men was killed almost to a man, but they'd sold their lives at a premium price. By the end of the siege, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 Ottoman soldiers lay dead. Some had died taking the old town or draining the moat. Others had died of dysentery or disease in the siege camp. But the majority of deaths were from the final explosion when the citadel collapsed and buried the soldiers in the rubble. As this story has been told and retold over the years, myth and folklore has kind of crept into the narrative. One I particularly enjoyed said that Zrinsky's final charge made it all the way to the Sultan's tent where he killed Suleiman with his bare hands before being overwhelmed by his guards. But the most famous story, and the one I used in our introduction, goes that Zrinsky rigged a bomb. Knowing that the Ottoman soldiers will loot the castle, he leaves it behind before charging out to meet his fate. To be fair, there's nothing disproving this series of events. 
I mean, there was an explosion that killed a stack of Ottoman soldiers, but it seems more plausible that it was caused by an ammunition cache catching fire rather than a deliberate plan by Zerinsky. Legends aside, Zerinsky's doomed resistance continues to inspire to this day. A national hero in Croatia and Hungary, his last stand is still represented in paintings, statues, poetry, even operas. My personal favourite is a piece of art by Johann Peter Kraft that vividly captures the drama of the final charge as Zrinsky, covered in red and gold silks, charges from the smoky fortress, sabre-raised into the Ottoman lines. On September the 7th, 2017, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan arrived at Friendship Park in southern Hungary. There were no janissaries, no cannons, no Habsburgs, no sultans anymore. No longer a contested territory between two enormous empires, Sagetvar is a peaceful parkland in a rural part of modern Hungary. The Turkish president wore a simple black suit with dark shades. Carrying a laurel wreath, he walked towards the enormous bust of Suleiman the Magnificent. Friendship Park, which sits beside the ruins of Sagetvar Castle, was constructed in 1994 in an attempt to consolidate relationships between Hungary and Turkey. Originally, it was just going to be a bust of Suleiman there, but the Hungarians and Croatians were appalled that their national hero was not represented, so an equally imposing bust of Nikola Zrinski was added. Despite the name of the park, the titanic busts of these men look anything but friendly. Two block-carved faces raised on a platform in the middle of the park. Suleiman with his sloping, enormous turban looks fierce and domineering and Zerinsky, with his feathered cap and neat beard, looks stoic and unmoved. If the busts were turned to face each other, it would look like a cage match was about to start. But President Erdogan wasn't just there for a stroll in the sunshine. Well known for his admiration of the Ottoman Empire, he was there to commemorate the anniversary of Suleiman the Magnificent. 450 years ago to the day, Sagetvar had fallen and Sultan Suleiman with it. Suleiman could be something of a personal hero for President Erdogan, whose government policies have often been described as neo-Ottoman. In the last few decades, Friendship Park and Segetvar have generated a lot of media attention in Turkey. According to legend, after Suleiman died in his tent, his internal organs, specifically his heart, were removed, placed in a golden box and buried underneath the spot his tent was pitched. While his body was transported back to Istanbul for his funeral, a small tomb was constructed near Segetvar where his organs were buried. For a century after, this tomb was a bit of a pilgrim destination for local Muslims, but when the Habsburgs retook the area, they burned it to the ground. As the centuries passed, the story of the tomb was thought to be nothing but an old urban legend. But in 2013, Hungarian professor Norbert Papp was trekking through the outskirts of Segetva, poking through the ruins and looking for clues. It was a swelteringly hot day, so when a local winemaker invited the archaeologist to take a break on his patio, Norbert accepted. Under the canopy of grapevines, the professor waited patiently for a glass of the local produce. As he sat, he noticed the table he was sitting on was propped up by an old red stone, with unusually precise divots hammered into it. He asked the winemaker where the stone had come from, and the man explained that in his cellar there were tons of stones that looked this way. Descending down the crooked stairs into the ancient cellar, 
Norbert looked past the dusty stack of wine bottles and realised he was standing in the badly damaged remains of Suleiman the Magnificent's tomb. Comparing it with a sketch in an old monastery, the dimensions seemed to match, and when a specific prayer niche was pointed directly towards Mecca with less than one degree of deviation, he believed he'd finally found it. The rediscovery of this lost tomb created quite a stir. Though there isn't much to see, many travelled to this poor region of Hungary, including two descendants of Sultan Suleiman himself. Kanizi Murad, a French writer, and I guess you could argue an Ottoman princess, travelled to the cellar and remarked, quote, When they showed us the exact place, I could not resist the emotion nor suppress my tears. I raised my hands and prayed for Sultan Suleiman, the legislator, the magnificent, asking God to help Turkey in her difficult situation. Kanizi even provided some of her hair as a DNA sample in case any remains were found. As President Erdogan laid his wreath beneath the bust of Suleiman the Magnificent, he hoped that others would follow him and this would become a kind of pilgrim route, just like it was after the death of Suleiman. Friendship Park still stands today, partly funded by Erdogan's government. Hungary is one of the numerous countries where Turkey exerts kind of soft power. In fact, if you overlay a map of Suleiman's empire atop countries where modern Turkey has an economic interest, you'd see a lot of overlap. Erdogan has been very clear about his intentions to make Turkey an international power again. And while Viktor Orban, the president of Hungary, would no doubt welcome Turkish investment into one of Hungary's poorest regions, he himself is renowned for harsh views on immigration, particularly Muslim immigration. And his speeches regularly reference the humiliation his country suffered during Ottoman occupation. As of 2023, it's been almost 500 years since the Getva fell. And while Suleiman, Zrinsky, the Janissaries and the Habsburgs are all gone, it's interesting to think how much has really changed. This has been Anthology of Heroes. Thanks for tuning in. Before the outro music plays today, guys, I wanted to remind you that this is our final episode for season five. This season has had about 20 or so episodes, our longest yet. Just a heads up for any new listeners, I try and take about a one or two month break between seasons to you know, get a head start on research and stuff like that. So things will go quiet on the feed for a bit. But you can keep up to date with the show, our releases, research, and just general information on the show by following us on Instagram or Facebook where I'm most active. This is also a final call for any Q&A questions. At the end of each season, I usually like to do a little season summary to show where we've gone and what we've talked about. And this time, I thought it might be fun to include some audience questions. So if you've got any questions or suggestions for me, either about me personally, the show, the sources, you know, whatever, there's a few ways you can get in touch with me and I'll read them out on the show. First, you can email me, anthologyofheroespodcast, or one word, at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram at Anthology of Heroes, or you can leave a voicemail on our website, anthologyofheroespodcast.com. If you do leave your voice, heads up, I will probably be playing it on the episode, so make sure you're okay with that. All those links are in the episode description. Real talk though, guys, I really hope you enjoyed this season, and if you have, maybe you've got a second to rate this show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, it just takes a second. Alternatively, if you really enjoyed the show, maybe you'd like to join our team of generous patrons. The patrons of the show give me a few dollars a month, which helps me cover the cost of hosting the show. If you'd like to do that, there's a link in the episode description as well. A big shout out to our generous patrons, as always. 
Claudia, Tom, Caleb, Malcolm, Seth, Angus, Phil, Lisa, Jim, Alan, and John. Thanks a lot, you guys. Big to you on the Season 5 wrap-up. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.